Hello, and welcome to A History of Japan. Season 11, Episode 5, Iemitsu's Marvelous Machine. The reign of Shogun Tokugawa Iemitsu was one of the most consequential periods in Japanese history, and many of his policies came to define life in Japan throughout the Edo period and arguably beyond. We skimmed his tenure at the helm in the previous episode because I wanted to dedicate an entire episode to his reign, policies, and their ripples, which would continue to shape Japan's domestic and foreign policies for decades to come. This episode will also serve as a broad overview of the political development of the early Edo period. When Tokugawa Ieyasu officially retired from the position of shogun and took up the office of Ogo Sho, retired shogun, he was following a precedent in Japanese history which at times enabled extremely catastrophic consequences. You may recall from earlier seasons how the shift in imperial power under Emperor Shirakawa, who is credited with creating the tradition of cloistered rule, enabled the rise of the samurai and the eventual eclipse of the imperial government by the warrior class. Ieyasu almost certainly had rational justifications for this maneuver. Although he and his son Hidetada had endured a strained father-son relationship, Ieyasu may still have wanted to ensure that his son actually succeeded him as shogun. If Hidetada could not hold on to power after Ieyasu died, then at least he would have only himself to blame. However, just like with cloistered rule, the practice of ruling from behind the veil of retirement created a cult of personality for the retiree, and disempowered the office of shogun, acting as a secondary channel through which official shogunal edicts could be countermanded or even outright cancelled. Toward the end of his time as independent shogun, Hidetada leaned heavily into anti-Christian policies, which began with book bans but soon culminated in a horrific public mass execution in 1622. After a sort of inquisition in Nagasaki, 55 residents who were identified as Christians refused to engage in rituals of apostasy, usually trampling on crucifixes or other icons of Jesus Christ. 30 were beheaded outright, but the other 25 were given the especially painful and gruesome end of being burned at the stake. Among those burned were nine foreign priests, which marks this incident as the first time that foreign Christian clergy were subjected to the death penalty in Japanese history. Richard Cox, a Protestant English merchant sailor who witnessed the event, wrote about the horror he felt as he witnessed this persecution, and later described Japan as the greatest tyranny the world has ever known. Whether Japan in the 1600s was more or less tyrannical than many of the absolute monarchies that governed Europe during the same period is a matter of historical debate, but it is worth remembering that the Edo shogunate was founded as a reactionary regime whose primary right to rule stemmed from its defense of practices and customs which were seen as traditional. As I hope you have learned in the course of this podcast, tradition was a fluid concept through much of Japanese history. While a few ancient principles and practices survived into the modern era, Japan had a long history of regularly adopting wider trends from regional neighbors like China and Korea. The entire government of the Heian period was essentially imported from China, regardless of its ability to function within the political landscape of Japan. However, 
historians of the Edo period had a nasty habit of anachronistically projecting their society and values upon their forebears, a habit which continues to cloud Japanese history even to this day. This is not a trend which is unique to Japan, however. One of the most widely read histories of ancient Rome was The Decline and Fall of the Roman Empire by Edward Gibbon, a source which today gives current working historians endless headaches with its mistranslations, misunderstandings, and general projection of Victorian values upon 5th century Rome. So how did the Edo Bakufu craft their ideal society? We touched on the social strata of Edo period Japan briefly in the final bonus episode from last season, The Sacred and the Profane, but it is worth refreshing here. The shogunate sought to enforce a caste system upon Japanese of every social strata, with the emperor at the very top followed by the court nobility. After the kuge came the samurai, then farmers, then craftspeople, and at the bottom of the social hierarchy was the merchant class. However, this is a deceptive measure of Edo period social ranking because below the merchants there were several subclasses of untouchables, people who either worked so-called dirty jobs like undertakers or tanners, as well as sex workers, beggars, and certain entertainers. Existence as an untouchable or eta was for some a permanent condition and others a matter of temporary circumstance. We will have more to say on the subject of sex work later this season as the floating world of the geisha came into its own during the Edo period. As for the Edo Bakufu itself, it had initially existed largely as an organ for the execution of Tokugawa Ieyasu's will. After his passing and after the reign of Hidetada, Yemitsu had an opportunity to transform it into something more. When his father died, Iemitz inherited his top advisors, close compatriots of his late father, who intended to act as his regents. After he arranged for his brother and potential replacement Shogun Taranaga to be removed, and after that brother committed seppuku in 1633, Iemitz decided to clean house. He began by dismissing his father's partisans from their high-ranking positions and replacing them with some of his longtime friends. Among most monarchies, such a decision would mark the beginning of very bad times, but in Iemitsu's case, these young men seem to have been able enough to avert an entire collapse of governing order. Plus, while other young monarchs might execute such a maneuver because they wanted to live in sloth and hedonism with their friends, Iemitsu did this because he had ideas of his own regarding how best to govern the nation and needed loyal and obedient Bakufu officers to see his will take form. Now free from his father's interference and from the patronizing obstruction of the regents, Iemitsu proceeded to issue a flurry of official edicts and laws which further solidified the shogunate's power for generations to come. First, he set about refining the existing leadership structure of the Bakufu, and then cemented his new structure using the existing offices but more directly defining their duties. At the top was the Tairo, or Great Elders, for which Iemitsu assigned three august samurai leaders, Doi Toshikatsu, Sakai Tadayo, and Sakai Tarakatsu. Beneath the three Tairo were the Roju, or elders, who acted as an advisory council as well as an administrative body. 
Under his predecessors, there had typically been two such roju serving the shogunate, but Iemitsu increased this to five, though he later reduced its number to four. They were responsible for a variety of administrative duties, from monetary policy to public works to relations with the imperial court to recognition of fiefs. These duties were handled by one individual roju, who rotated in and out of active status every month. The bugyo, or commissioners, served as the heads of the bakufu's executive departments and are thus best understood in their particular capacity. There were two Edo Machibugyo, or Edo city commissioners, who oversaw city government, police, and criminal justice in Edo. There were four Jishabugyo, or clergy commissioners, who maintained discipline with the various monasteries, shrines, and temples for both Buddhism and Kami worship. There were likewise four Kanjobugyo, or finance ministers, who oversaw the Tokugawa family domains and entertained petitions from around Kanto. Serving the Bugyo were four Ometsuke, or chief inspectors, who were authorized to send their inspectors, or Metsuke, to any area where investigation was needed. Each Ometsuke supervised 16 Metsuke, and they were essentially secret police. This brings us to the Hyojo Shou, a government body who oversaw administrative matters as well as the legal system in a capacity similar to a supreme court. The Hyojo Shou were composed of the Roju and the Bugyo from every sub-branch of commissioners as well as the Ometsuke. With the help of the usual cadre of Bakufu scholars, Iemitsu made a critical update to the Buke Shohato, the laws governing military houses, in 1634. Expanding upon Article 9, which reads, quote, Daimyo must present themselves at Edo for service to the shogunate, end quote, he ensured that this would not be an empty idealistic directive, but would be an actual practice. The new expansion of the Buke Shohato required all Tozama, or outsider daimyo, to take up residence in Edo every other year and leave their wives and heirs in Edo during the year in which they returned to their domain. This system became known as Sankin Kotai, which means alternating attendance. The Tozama lords were a constant source of concern for the Bakufu, who used neighboring Fudai daimyo to keep them under constant surveillance. By ordering them to attend the shogun in Edo every other year, they were able to keep a closer eye on them in person, as well as drain the Tozama's treasury via travel expenses and warriors' salaries. Technically, the daimyo were rendering military service to the shogun with these biennial visits, which meant they were expected to bring a certain number of warriors. In 1642, Sankin Kotai was expanded to include the Fudai daimyo, though the Fudai who resided in the vicinity of Edo were granted an exemption and only made to live in the shogun's capital for six months of every year. General exceptions were also granted to other daimyo around the nation in the case of illness or other circumstantial hardship which made traveling to Edo especially difficult. During their year in Edo, they were given an assignment by the shogun. Usually they were ordered to oversee a construction or renovation project within the city. 
When Date Tsunamune was arrested for public drunkenness and general disorder, which we discussed in the previous episode, he was in Edo during his year of Sankin Kotai, overseeing renovation of a canal. These biennial residences certainly provided new opportunities for clan officers to plot against their daimyo, and such plots served to weaken the clans which, by default, made them easier for the bakufu to dominate. Because they were now expected to live in Edo every other year, the daimyo built comfortable residences in the bakufu capital, which were often spacious, luxurious homes. The expenditure required by Sankin Kotai, along with the periodic required financing of construction efforts, was sufficient to ensure that the Tozama could not finance wars, large or small. The biennial pilgrimage to Edo also nurtured the economy, providing incentive for the construction of large inns and other amenities in villages and towns along the main roads that led to Edo, which were patronized by traveling daimyo and their considerable retinues. The city of Edo likewise enjoyed an economic boost from the alternate attendant system, and its population grew as artisans, merchants, entertainers, and other civilians offered various goods and services to the visiting daimyo and their entourages. Though they may have grated at the expenditure and disliked being away from their domains, the daimyo had good reason to obey the shogunate and keep Tokugawa Iemitsu happy. We briefly discussed the Hatamoto and Gokenin of the Tokugawa family in the first episode, but they are worth discussing in greater detail here. The Hatamoto were trusted retainers of the Tokugawa clan who enjoyed the right to direct access to the shogun. Their annual income from fiefs or salaries was less than 10,000 koku, and often far smaller than that. In fact, the shogunate's general policy toward the Hatamoto was to encourage them to relinquish their fiefs in favor of fixed stipends. The purpose of this trend was twofold. It ensured that the Hatamoto were dependent upon the salaries paid by the bakufu, and it separated these middle-class samurai from the land and, more importantly, from the peasants. Rural smallholders had sometimes created problems for previous shogunates and had a nasty habit of arming and training the villagers under their care. The Tokugawa shogunate wanted none of that. During Iemitsu's time, the number of Hatamoto was around 5,000. Their primary function was to raise armies for the shogun in short order, and the expectation from the shogunate was that they would, when ordered, bring a certain number of warriors on a sliding scale depending upon their income. It is estimated that among the Hatamoto alone, the shogunate was able to raise an army of around 80,000 in fairly short order if necessary. While this would not have granted them an immediate military superiority if several clans pooled their resources in a massive civil war, it certainly provided a formidable quick-response force, capable of making war practically anywhere in the nation. Again, this 80,000-strong army was only what the Hatamoto were able to provide. We'll discuss the shogunate's broader military strength in a few moments. Following his practice of reforming existing offices by more directly defining their responsibilities, Iemitsu turned to a recently created office called Wakadoshiyori for help managing the Hatamoto. 
Created in 1631, the Wakadoshi Yori, or Junior Elders, were subordinate to the Roju and charged with supervising the Hatamoto and performing miscellaneous civic functions like inspecting buildings and managing tradespeople and physicians. They were also told to keep watch over the enfiefed Gokenin, the lower vassals whose annual incomes were less than 10,000 koku. When considering how many of his reforms included or were even centered on increasing surveillance on almost every group outside and even within the Bakufu, Yemitsu also comes off as paranoid. Once again, I am reminded of the 1995 film Casino. The dealers are watching the players, the boxmen are watching the dealers, the floormen are watching the boxmen, the pit bosses are watching the floormen, the shift bosses are watching the pit bosses. The shogunate under Iemitsu's tenure had been transformed into a self-surveilling surveillance state. It could be that he feared his position was still weak after the death of his father, and it is entirely possible that he never recovered psychologically from his dread of being usurped even after the death of his brother Tadanaga. Reforming the Bakufu into the longest-lasting warrior government in Japanese history was not the only way in which he projected his strength. In 1634, he made a grand visit to Kyoto at the head of a massive army said to number over 300,000. We discussed this briefly in the last episode, but I purposefully neglected to mention the massive army which marched through the capital streets. This was primarily a display of power, however, and not an outright invasion or violent reprisal. The official visit took place five years after the retirement of Emperor Go Mizunowo, and the new sitting sovereign was none other than Empress Meisho, Iemitsu's niece. The shogun treated the imperial court and the kuge with great deference and respect, in spite of arriving at the head of a fearsome army, and doled out monetary rewards to the throne and to many of the important noble families. It was a few months after his grand trip to Kyoto that Iemitsu proclaimed the new Sankin Kotai policy of alternating attendance for Tozama Daimyo. It is possible that, in addition to intimidating any potential troublemakers in the imperial court, Iemitsu also hoped that his display of force would intimidate the Tozama Daimyo as well. A single army of over 300,000 was larger than any single army raised during Sengoku Jidai and the Azuchimomoyama period, as far as I was able to find. The Tozama were undoubtedly aware by now of how much they were being watched by their Fudai neighbors. If the policy of alternating attendance, a costly and bothersome burden, irritated any of them to the point of pondering armed resistance, it is almost certain that such ideas would have perished early in the planning phases. None of the Tozama possessed the resources needed to make such a venture winnable, nor were they able to safely coordinate with like-minded outsider daimyo. In addition to the law of alternating attendance, Iemitz also pushed the nation into an isolationist posture in its foreign policy. From 1633 to 1639, Iemitz issued a series of edicts against foreign influence, and even its general presence on the islands of Japan. We've already discussed this in broad strokes, but it's worth mentioning that an edict in 1636 specifically stated that the crews of any ships attempting to violate these policies would be put to death. That same edict offered a handsome bounty for anyone who discovered a hidden Catholic priest and brought them to the shogunate's attention. 
As if confirming Iemitsu's fears about the shogunate's vulnerability, the end of 1637 saw the beginning of the Shimabara Rebellion, which would stretch until nearly the summer of 1638. By 1639, there was no longer any question in the minds of the top Bakufu officials. The foreigners needed to be kept out of Japan by any means necessary, lest they and their foreign religions disrupt the harmony of the nation's social fabric. These edicts and policies are commonly referred to as sakoku, meaning locked country. However, it's worth noting that the term sakoku was coined in 1801, long after the policies were originally promulgated. It is not entirely correct to think of Iemitsu's anti-foreigner decrees as a larger part of a unified ideology, but like so many other aspects of his reign, was a reaction to the events of his time. While the Sakoku policy certainly limited Japan's exposure to foreign influences, it did not do so to an absolute degree. Contact with Korea and China was more limited, but news from those neighbors would gradually trickle through the nation along with the goods they traded. Choson and Japan especially continued to influence one another, as there was a Japanese trade colony established in Busan, which hosted a thriving Japanese merchant community. The changes and reforms wrought by Tokugawa Iemits ultimately transformed the character of Edo itself. Already a thriving metropolis, Edo once more needed to expand to accommodate the biennial visits of the daimyo, and its market quarter especially grew as new vendors came to offer their goods and services. Another new group also began to expand its membership in the shoguno capital, although their purposes were far less mercantile and far more aggressive and violent. Street gangs had been a problem in Edo since before the siege of Osaka. By Iemitsu's time, these gangs had not only grown to become a real danger to those who travel the streets at night, but had developed their own bizarre subculture. The gangs themselves were called kabukimono, a word which literally translates to those who lean, but whose figurative meaning is more like eccentrics, or less charitably, weirdos. This nomenclature is attributed to the bizarre behavior which these street gangs engaged in. They wore outrageously gaudy costumes and styled their hair in ostentatious fashions. They decorated the hilts of their katana with bright colors and encrusted jewels and grew bushy sideburns. As you may have guessed from the fact that they carried weapons, they were primarily of the samurai class, typically composed of ronin, but a surprising number of their leaders were hatamoto. In 1635, Iemitsu had forced all hatamoto of fiefs with a value of 500 koku per annum or less to give up their land and accept government stipends instead. These stipends were insufficient to maintain the lifestyle some of them had previously enjoyed while in fiefed, and a significant number of them turned to a life of street crime to supplement their meager incomes. They engaged in some of the usual street gang activities, mugging those they encountered in the night, brawling with their rival gangs, and even engaging in tsujigiri, or sword testing, by slicing a newly acquired blade through an unwary night traveler. The various gangs gave themselves outrageously ridiculous names like Daisho Jingigumi, or Band of All Gods, Great and Small, and their leaders were known by equally dramatic sobriquets like Arashinosuke, or Captain Storm. 
Since before Iemitsu's time and throughout his reign and beyond, the Bakufu had a difficult time curtailing the violent and unbecoming behavior of the Kabukimono. However, the activities of the Kabukimono spurred a reaction from their primary targets, the merchant class. Although they occupied one of the lower rungs of the Edo caste system, the merchants were far from powerless. Wanting to protect their goods and profits from rampaging Kabukimono, they formed bands of Machi Yako to combat the gangs that menaced the city. The Yako adopted the same manner of ostentatious dress, outrageous hairstyles, and flamboyant personae as their Kabukimono opponents, and both sides claimed to be fighting on the side of righteousness. Unfortunately, much of what we know about the Kabukimono and the Machi Yako is gleaned from stage plays in the latter 1700s, which prominently featured the most famous street gang leaders and dramatized their lives and deaths. It is possible that the Kabukimono were primarily dispossessed or impoverished samurai who were lashing out at the merchant class whom they envied or saw as a corrupting influence in the new government. Whatever the case, both groups are potential precursors to a group which would emerge around the mid-Edo period and whose activities and traditions live on today, the Yakuza. Whether the Yakuza descend from the Kabukimono or the Machiyako or some combination of both is a matter of fierce historical debate and far beyond the scope of my expertise. Rest assured, we will have more to discuss in the future regarding the Yakuza, whose more direct point of origin is tied to carnival peddlers and gambling houses. In spite of flamboyant street gangs and mid-scale rebellions, the reign of Iemitsu solidified the governmental structure of the shogunate and his reforms would influence future bakufus until the latter 1800s. As we discussed in the previous episode, the reign of his son and successor Tokugawa Ietsuna had a rocky beginning, but the more dramatic struggles that often emerged from the regency of a child ruler did not materialize. In 1680, Ietsuna died and his half-brother Tsunayosh was made the new shogun over the objections of Sakai Tadakiyo, who wanted to place a son of Emperor Gosai on the shogunal throne. Tsunayosh, like his father Iemitsu, intended to introduce further reforms to the Edo Bakufu. However, we will discuss the various misadventures of Tokugawa Tsunayosh four episodes from now. Next time, we will once again turn our eyes to the west of Japan and discuss the decline of the Ming Dynasty and the rise of a new dynasty eager to take its place. Until then, thank you for listening. If you would like access to exclusive bonus episodes, as well as ad-free versions of the regular episodes, please consider supporting this podcast at patreon.com slash ahistoryofjapan. Thank you.